Welcome to Juice Podcast. Today I'm joined by my dear friend and colleague Arlene Stein. Arlene. Thank you for having me, Emily. No, thanks for being part of the podcast. And uh, yeah, at the moment, uh, we haven't, well, none of you have heard from us at Juice for some time. Uh, so the next few episodes are just going to be with me. And in the spring, Gwen and I will be back together um, with a new series. So yeah, in the meantime, you have me and Arlene today. Arlene, do you want to give a little introduction to who you are, what you do? Sure. So I've been working in the world of food and wine for about 20 years, maybe a bit longer, but that would age me. Uh, and <laughs> I have a keen interest in wine, as Emily knows, because we like to enjoy wine together. Um, I'm not as knowledgeable about most, but I've worked in the circle of it, and I'm really keen on knowing more about natural wine and uh, the state of wine and innovations in wine. So I'm excited to be here, and I'm excited to learn about Beaujolais. Yes, so today we have five wines from the region of Beaujolais, actually, which is super exciting. I think I might open the first one so we at least have, as you know, on the podcast here, we always make sure that our glass is never left empty. <laughs> I didn't know that was a rule or a creed. Well, <laughs> but I'm glad it is. <laughs> can I, maybe I can start asking you yeah. some questions because I'm yeah. actually super curious about this. So my knowledge of Beaujolais is, of course, uh, from the Beaujolais Nouveau, which is quite prevalent, has been in my course of history and working in this industry. Um, you know, didn't always have a great reputation, but was a nice fresh wine that sort of introduced a lot of people, especially in North America, to the grape, to the region, mm-hmm. and then also to Gamay. Um, I'd love to... Like, let me know a little bit more about the region and what's significant about it. I know it sits uh, between uh, Burgundy and Rome, two of my favorite regions. Yes. <laughs> and so, what's what's special about this? Like, the region has more in common with the Rhone, um, but from a wine style perspective, more in common with Burgundy. Actually, I think um, so. It's quite an interesting kind of meeting point between those two regions. And I would say, um, you know, I'm very much of the opinion that it was like kind of the last fine wine region to be discovered in France I think because you know it didn't always have the best the best reputation for fine wine let's say because the reputation for Beaujolais Nouveau was so prominent that I think everybody associated the region with just that style of wine which was that young fruity fresh like just drink it um, and really don't think about it too much yeah and also it's a certain price point which easy yeah (laughs) Definitely in the wine trade, in the wine business, we, we know it to be a region that produces very fine wine. And actually, um, in general, you know, aside from maybe some of some certain producers that you find in any region, I would say the quality is very high overall. So um, for me, it's one of the most exciting regions. It's a, it's a region that also um, is accessible to young winemakers because the vineyards aren't crazy prices and there are small patches of vineyards available for renting. So we see quite a lot of young negotiant producers renting patches of vines, slowly sort of um, expanding on their range. And actually we have like a couple of um, I would say like newer upcoming producers and sort of more established uh, newer producers too today as well. So that's something from a business level that I think is super fascinating that people don't know a lot about. I mean, France is very well established as people know in the wine world. It's an old, yeah. old world region. Uh, has some of the most expensive wines in the world that are coming from it. As a young person, again, yeah, what? It, how can you find something? Like, are you attached to a family that owns land or... Can, can I go and buy a piece of land in Beaujolais and find yeah. something that's affordable that I'm going to 
be productive within a few years? I think maybe buying is harder, but definitely renting is possible. And and I think you know, obviously, you know, you don't just sort of rock up and look in the real estate magazine. I think it's good to have connections and know people. <laughs> <You> don't. <laughs> But I think Beaujolais is one of the areas where we see more movement and it's quite dynamic in that way. It makes it really exciting uh, for me, actually, because there's sort of new producers to discover all the time. Well, and that's the one thing they say about France, too, is that because they are so, like, there's there's deep-seated traditions and foundations of, like, the way things should be done. So I would imagine, you know, having a place that is open to new, young, innovative winemakers would be a bit of a breath of fresh air or fresh wine. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly um so that's like so that's one part and then i think just going back to your first question about what makes the region really exciting is i think just love the great variety and the soils um it's an it's a region that's very diverse in the soils and it's very old soils as well uh, so depending on where the wine comes from within the appellation the style of wine will be different and have a different set of characteristics based on that as well so it's Quite an interesting region in that way. So varietal, Gamay is the predominant varietal. 100% Gamay, G-A-M-A-Y. We've only got Gamay. Uh, there's only two, uh, two, I was about to say there's only two appellations. There's only two grapes in the appellation, and that's Chardonnay for the whites, which really represents a small amount of production. And then, um, yeah, Gamay for all of the reds. Cool. And we've got, yeah, 12 different appellations in total. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Beaujolais, Beaujolais Village, and then the 10 crew. So we'll talk about the crew because we're going to taste. We've got three crew today to try across the five wines. And um, amazing. dig into those a bit more. Should we taste a little bit yeah. before I ask more questions? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> so okay. I actually bought two wines because um, I wasn't sure which one we should start with. So I thought we could decide. But I think... The second one I poured, which is this guy, is the one we should start with. So I've just poured for us the Marc Delienne Greta Carbo 2016 Fleury. A little bit more rusty than this one. This one's got its uh, yeah, deep purple. Exactly. It's a lot lighter, isn't it, in colour mm-hmm. and a little bit... I mean, you can see it's, it's obviously mm. unfiltered, so you mm-hmm. can see that, but it's quite transparent at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Fleury, I mean, Fleury, particularly in the UK, is a, a really well-known sort of appellation and, and a really well-known crew with I guess the reason why I like it and I think the reason why many people know Fleury and often I would say in the UK more people know Fleury than they do know that it's from Beaujolais sometimes like it has got it's really made its own brand as I love that it has this lovely light elegant um really just like fine tannins low tannins and this pretty fruit and aromas and always in Fleury for me um, can you tell us a bit about the winemaker? Yeah, so uh, relatively, I think he's only been making wine for around five or six years. Uh, not so, not um, this wasn't the fir- his first calling, and he's in his mid fifties now. Mm. Um, so there's hope for all of us. There's hope for all of us. And he, um, yeah, he had studied, um, I think, at Domaine de Trevion in Provence, and then started making natural wines in. Uh, in Beaujolais, and he, <laughs> I think I saw, I actually read a quote, and it said something like, well, what else would you do if you're going to change your career in your 50s? <laughs> and I was like, oh, this kind of got a point. Um, so yeah, this is 100% carbonic maceration, so uh, the grapes are put into a tank and sealed off with carbon dioxide inside, um, so we get sort of a really different profile. It's got that sort of typical, you know, this almost like bubblegum, cherry fruit, 
it's starting to go down now, I think, because of the age, but it's a lot more lifted on the nose in terms of the aromatics. Using concrete, he's a, yeah, biodynamic farming, the vines are 40 to 80 years of age. Everything's hand-picked. So would it have been a family farm then? Originally, do you know? No, I think he acquired the plots himself. And I don't actually know where this particular plot is for this wine. I know it's in the Appalachian Flurry, but there's no Ludi or um, vineyard uh, written on the back. And the concrete storage, which I know is splattered throughout uh, Europe, but you see it more in sort of Spain and France, Mm -hmm. at least in my experience. I, I feel like I taste it in this wine. Yeah. Not steely, but almost like a lot of mineral. Yeah, I think that's also the soils, but I think um, the use of concrete is great as a, a tool for winemaking because it's not as airtight as stainless steel, so it's not as reductive in the winemaking process. And then also, um, it doesn't flavour the wine like wood does. So you have this lovely purity of fruit shining through, mm-hmm. and you can see, I think you see the terroir more, and you can see the soil more in those wines. Um, it's quite lovely, it's easy and it's fresh. Well, fresh. Yeah, pretty, like pretty, pretty and yeah. elegant. And I think that comes, so that comes mainly because of the soils in Fleury. So there's mm-hmm. a high proportion of, um, and it's almost entirely, it's like 90% pink granite and it's like a sandy pink granite. So it's sort of, mm. that's the reason why you get more sort of, you get lo- lower tannins and more of this very pretty, elegant, almost, I don't want to say feminine because I'm trying not to use gender anymore to describe wines. <laughs> but yeah, this sort of pretty, delicate aroma. But I think what's interesting about Fleury is that it's the highest part of Beaujolais. There you go. That's sort of what I was saying. Yeah. yeah. So altitude-wise. Do you get a lot of range of altitude in Burgundy? Not in Burgundy, I'm sorry. Do you get a lot of range of altitude in Beaujolais? A lot of range of altitude. Because it's a valley. Yes, yes. But, I mean, it's not drastic like Etna or anything like that. But, yes, there's like several hundred metres between the different crews. So Fleury, um, the top vineyard, La Madone, is at 425 meters and there are other crews that sit at like 250 for example um and it's a very it's quite interesting flurry because when you're there and you do go up to the la madon you kind of on this hill like the hill and you can look over and you can see the other appellations Mm. in the distance as well so it's very it's very pretty place to visit too so beautiful Yeah. yeah yeah um yeah, and it's not a, it's not one of the smallest appellations, but it's not one of the biggest ones either. It's 830 hectares in total and 150 growers in Fleury alone. Nice. And are they all yeah. producing independently or is there a consortium as well? In terms of, I don't know in terms of, I mean, it's, I know it's 150 vine growers, but I would have to check the number of producers actually. But in general, I would say... I'd have to get the, the figures um, from the appellation, but there are a lot of vignerons that are working in their vines yeah. and producing the wine from their vineyards. It's quite an interesting region in that way. Like, it's really people are working the land and, um, and making wine from that land. That's really nice because in some yeah. regions, especially the lesser known regions like Languedoc, that's not necessarily the case. No, I mean, in the Languedoc, it's kind of, and like even in the Roussillon, I mean, people are abandoning the vineyards because it's so tough, but. And Bordeaux, for example, also, it's a mixed bag where you have sort of, you know, machine harvesting, for example, that's something that really doesn't really happen in Beaujolais because of the way in which the, vi- the vines themselves are grown. I was going to ask next, and yeah. maybe this is too complicated, but is there any impacts of climate change coming in the region that people are fearful of? 
No, I mean, I ask that question. Everybody, I mean, every grower that I've ever spoken to in any region says yes, and they notice that. (laughs) And I think there has been um, some things changing. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing for Beaujolais um, in terms of hydric, like, I don't know why I was about to say that in a French accent, but in terms of, like, water stress, I think Mm. it is something in certain parts of certain appellations where they are noticing the lack of water as an issue, but... That's more of an issue, I think, than the heat and sunburn. Sure. Um, and, I mean, in my opinion as well, sometimes it, it can help in certain appellations to just have a little bit more fruitiness and a little bit more softness, particularly in appellations like Morgon. I mean, it has quite a mild climate. I mean, we'll talk about it when we get there, but quite a mild climate, but then quite mineral, like hard soils. Mm-hmm. So you can get quite structured wines out of that appellation. So sometimes having that ripeness is a nice thing for maybe a more harmonious wine but it really depends vintage to vintage as well cool yeah so that's yes we've tried Mark Dillian and then in the second glass we've actually got a producer that I visited last uh, August which I didn't um, I mean it's shocked I still can't believe we made it to Beaujolais like in the midst of the pandemic but it, it happened it's almost like it was not a pandemic for like two months this summer. It's like no. a reprieve. I wish we had a reprieve. I mean, I do remember wearing my mask for about eight hours a day and just thinking, oh gosh, <laughs> this is so hot. But, um, and it was 37 degrees every day. Yeah. Like not it was, cool. it, well. It's, Literally not cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we've got, anyway, so we vis- I visited this, this gentleman here called. Uh, Gre- yeah, Gregoire Hopino, mm. and uh, actually, I love the labels because these are maps of the vineyards, all the different Ludi oh, here nice. as well. Yeah. So this is the this is so uh, Domaine Gregoire Hopino, uh, Fleury Claude Lamandier. So same appellation. Same appellation, same region. Um, slightly different winemaking. I was going to say, what's the what's the difference? This is not filtered. This is natural. Yeah, so actually, Gregoire Hopino, I, I don't think he, like, he uses sulfur in his wines, and I think a little bit more sulfur, but for me, he's kind of, like, on the classic side of natural mm-hmm. in terms of the winemaking. Like, there is sulfur, but I don't believe anything else is being added to the wines, from my knowledge. Um, so there's a lovely finesse and purity to the wines, too. And this is from, uh, so the Claude de Mondier is a part of the Poncier, but, like, at the foothills of that, and it's quite interesting because the... The viticulture is different. So one parcel is with the bush vines and one part is with the Cordon Royale as well. So tell me a little bit about these bush vines because I saw them for the first time a couple of years ago when we were traveling through the south of France. Yeah. Uh, this isn't the south of France, obviously, but uh, it was the first time I'd ever seen that sort of method of uh, trailing. And so what's the point of that? I'd like to lo- learn a little bit more. Yeah. And why only in certain regions are they using that kind of... So it really depends on the region. I know, like, for example, in uh, places like Sierra de Grados in Spain and Mount Etna, with the soil types and older vines it re- and hotter sunshine days, like in South Africa, for example, when they grow Chenin Blanc, it's always bush vine because you have the protection of the leaves or draping over the grapes, so you're protected from the, the grapes, the grapes, the grapes yes. over-ripening. <laughs> So explain just a little bit first, because I think some people aren't familiar with it, like the way they bring them up and they're not trailing. No, so traditionally, I think many people will know that a vineyard usually kind of looks like Mm -hmm. a vine, like a little bit like a scarecrow with the arms stretched out and the grapes hanging underneath them. Um, 
it's quite different, isn't and it? Like chocolate. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's really delicious. This wine. Sorry. And then, um, but with the bush wines, it's it's you're not doing anything to it. It's just the way that the plant naturally grows, and it looks like a bush. So you have a sort of sort of short. Depends on the grape variety. Depends on the soil. Depends on the climate of like how high that bush vine is. But I mean, in Beaujolais, they're very small actually, and they're kind of for me. They always remind me of like little witch's claws coming out of the ground when you see them without the leaves on. And I don't know why that is, but it's always stuck with me that it's got this kind of like timber to vibe. But they're yeah, they look like. Well, when I saw like, them, I actually didn't think they were vines. I thought it must be some kind like of a fruit tree. Or something. Fruit tree. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. The best time to see them is when there are no leaves on them. Um, but yeah, now there's been a bit of a movement. I think it might be to do with more rain and, and things like that, that um, they're moving more towards Cordon Royale, the traditional method of training. And also for a lot of uh, producers, when they're in the vineyards working by hand, it's really, really, um, like there's a, there's a high amount of labor that they have to work in the vineyards. Like sure. There's many hours of like, you can't, you can't take a machine for anything. You can't even take a tractor down the line to help pick up the boxes for the grapes, for example. Like It's too small? It's too small. Like, with, like Are they terraced? No terracing. That's not really a thing in Beaujolais. Okay. Um, you do have some s- steep slopes. Of course, steep slopes you can never use machinery for, but I think it's just a case of it's easier to make the work by hand. It just takes a little bit of pressure off people. That's what quite a few of the growers were saying, is that for them to look after these old vines and protect them and keep them kind of disease free. They were moving more towards Cordon Royat. Um, yeah, so that's, that's crazy. Changing. So everything's handpicked that we're tasting today. Yeah, everything is in all of the wines that we're trying, yeah. That's amazing. It's very expensive too, right? It's very labor intensive. Yeah. If I'm um, gonna be honest, yeah. I find this heavy, um, but I probably find heavier. it heavy, heavier. Heavier, yeah. this is the thing. So yeah. in comparison to this, I, I love this one. Um, I think so for those that are on audio, that's the, um, the Greta Carbo from Mark Dillian is your preference. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mm. I just, what did you call it? Not frilly, but I might call it frilly. Pretty and lacy Pretty. and lacy. fresh. Lacy yeah, is like where I was getting that. Exactly. So for me, I just think that this is um, easy and cheerful. I think that's what I said yeah. before. I mean, and then I like this one. It's much, it's much more complex, has a lot more depth. The hopper note, yeah, I think so too. And I think it's interesting because there are similarities. They're not like super tannic wines, but the fruit profile is different. But they're also from different vintages, right? Like 116. So I think in that Greta Carbo, you still have the, that lovely kind of lifted aroma and perfume, but this kind of like earthiness, like beetroot and things. And, um, and then with the Opino, like I think for me, what I love about it is like, there is a bit more texture and there is a little bit more density. Um, and I would also assume, but I'm not sure, I think, yeah, no, I just double checked my notes there. It's eight months in old food dress. So you see a little bit of that impact of wood, even though the, it's large wood and it's old oak. Um, I think you can still sort of see that in the texture of the wine and it just makes it feel maybe a little bit, a little bit more sophisticated in a certain way, um, but not necessarily being better, but just like a different expression. And I think that's what's really interesting is there's like the fingerprint of flurry, but there's also 
like this lovely, you can see like the different vineyards within the Appalachian and the different winemaking expresses itself in a certain way as well. Well, that's what's really interesting about tasting the two wines because I do think that they're very different. I mean, same grape, same Appalachian, and yet two distinct mm. characteristics in each of them. Yeah, and I think, I know as well, just, um, I was just looking at my notes there as well with the, with the Deli and the Greta Carbo, like a lot of that's more sandy soils. And where Greg Wilde's wines, or vines, sorry, are, it's a little bit stonier as well. So I think that's what's also adding to like this sort of richer or slightly more dense palette as well. But yeah, mm. I love Fleury. I love both of them, actually. Yeah. I just drink lots of that one. Yeah, because it's so light, right? It's so light, exactly. And like, what's the alcohol on it? 12%. Ah, there you go. And what's very light? what this was? It's 13. Yeah. Mm. So you can see that. And, and yeah, mm. I could drink this by itself. I could drink it with a cheese board and some charcuterie. I might probably want this with a meal. It looks something a little heavier, I think. Yeah, I think as well, like with, um, I mean, that's got kind of the typical thing as well of like cascrute when you have rillette and mm-hmm. charcuterie or some mm. cheese and some bread, like, and then, you know, some cornichon and you're eating these things. And like a wine like this, just like perfect. It's like a dream, isn't it? Being in Beaujolais, eating those things, drinking those things. It's like, ah. Yeah. So I think from here, we should go on to the... Should we get rid of these? If you would like to, yes. Yeah, I will. I'm going to keep one and I'm going to keep that one there. You might want to compare it. Ah, fair enough. Keep one to compare, maybe. So we'll just use one glass. So... Now that's really dark as well. So this, <laughs> this is, I mean, it's difficult because we're in the dark, the evening light aura. Mm. Um, so this is the 2000, I just want to check the vintage, yeah, 2018 again, uh, it's Cote de Bruit from Alex Foyard. So this actually smells to me, you talked about those notes of bubblegum and like light cherry. That to me smells like a typical Beaujolais. Yeah, it's got this really lifted, I love this, it's got this really lifted aromatic profile where it's got this kind of like raspberry candy, almost violet tones mm-hmm. coming out. It's like quite a floral actually. That would be something I would be most familiar with. The other two wines, like I said, with this one, the chocolate and the plum hit me. Mm. I think with the, with the Marc Delian that we tried at the beginning, it's... Well, it's carbonic maceration, but it's with it's 2016, so it started to develop. So it does taste a little bit diff- different to what you would expect. I think also there's kind of a misunderstanding around when oh. to drink Beaujolais wines because I think I think because of Beaujolais Nouveau, there is a presumption that all wines from this region should be consumed whilst young. Sure, and I would say. This is what is amazing about this region because actually a lot of these wines age very well. Like I, the first time I went to Beaujolais, it was like 2013, and I went there and somebody served me a, a 99 Fleury, so it was already over 10 years old. And I was like, wow, this wine's amazing. Why have I never been told like these wines age really well? And of course they do because they're fine wines. And just because if a wine isn't super tannic doesn't mean that it's not great you know like i think that everything's shifting now in wine and if a wine's made well from good terroir there's potential for aging and well i want to talk to you a little bit about that because i didn't get to ask the question but first i want to say i love this i think it's delicious i really really love this (laughs) (laughs) 
my favorite so far. Um, but this idea that um, a wine region gets known for a particular thing, hmm. in this case, young, new wines, the gamay hmm. that's new, because it was a marketing, part of a marketing scheme yeah. to bring representation to the region and differentiate itself. Champagne has done that. There are many other uh, locales, Napa. Yeah, and listen, I mean, Beaujolais as well, it's been like, it's like a radical self-reclamation of this region for all of the growers there because there was a time, you know, like all of the original natural wine guys, like when you look at the movement of when that started, which is an old story now, but like when you look at that, that was at a time, it was really challenging to be able to sell, your, sell the wines and, and also like grow the grapes and be able to cover your costs. Like it was a really challenging time. And I think this is really to the testament of the terroir and the people in the region to like how quickly they've actually created uh, a, a region that really is a gastronomic wine producing region. Because, and a new identity, essentially. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is what for me is really exciting about Beaujolais is it's that lovely... It's that lovely mix of like classic, classic, conventional, but then also like kind of radical and new and exciting and dynamic and sort of cutting edge as well. Like it's in some ways like kind of the most classic region, but also the most hipster. Like it manages those two, par- like those two, like the dichotomy of those two faces of Beaujolais. It manages that really well and delivers depending on who's drinking it like it's really the and, audience I think is wider than in other regions and you've covered some of this uh, already but what would you say are the strengths moving forward in terms of bringing it to the forefront of that gastronomic wine growing region at this point the strengths yeah when you say the strengths of the region bringing it forward you mean like what why is it becoming yeah what is it about the region that collectively they're going to make an identity for themselves I mean, every wine region kind of has to struggle to work together Mm. because as a general consumer, you know, we're not going to know each of these individual wines, but we're going to go on the reputation of the space. Mm. We know that a lot of Central European wine regions struggle because, well, we know why, because of collectivization of agriculture and all these other sort of historical downsides that they have, and they're trying to make a name for themselves. But France, you've got this, I mean, one of their... uh, struggles i would presume is that again in this wine region that is so well known for making some of the best and most expensive wines in the world as a small producer from Beaujolais, like how do you work as a collective as a series of appellations to actually Mm. make your mark and say we are the place that has the innovation that has the forward thinkingness that has a dynamic blend of like really new and innovative and also traditional like what is it where do you see them going and what are the strengths that are going to pull them that way I mean, I, I really think it's like, it's quite simple, I think. And I think that is the, the terroir, like it's the soils there with the grape variety will produce high quality wines. That's like, of course, fundamental for any region that's going to be recognised globally um, and will continue to be, like the longevity of that will be maintained because of that. It has to come down to the soil, it has to come down to the terroir. And it's amazing, an amazing region for that. Like that is fundamentally the first thing. And the second thing on that is the people in the region, Mm. the people that are working the land, the people that are making these wines. Like, of course, you can have amazing terroir and you can have vineyards there. But if people aren't farming them the right way and they're not producing the wines in the right way, that's it. And it's like, it's really like, this is the thing. It's not a contrived thing, actually. It's like the opposite. It's like really pure 
And it's just like, hey, we've got something, we've got an amazing opportunity here with this soil, with these grapes to make something spectacular. And it's, someone has to just take that role and do that. Like, well, I was going to say, and as you mentioned at the beginning, which I think is so lovely, is because it is more accessible, you bring in the young blood. Even your 50 year old winemaker, still young blood. Mm. Right? But really, you're bringing in new people that are just dynamic. Exactly, tied to the tradition necessarily. Yeah, and I think that is the thing. There are people like, I mean, there's like um, Andrew and Emma Nielsen from Le Grappin who are negotiants and they're working in the south of the southern part of Burgundy and also in, uh, in Beaujolais and they're making amazing wines and they've had terrific su- success in the UK market with the wines. And I mean, they're Australian, you know, and they're coming in and they're making wines that are authentic and true to the place. But of course, like when people come in with different expertise from different places and different knowledge bases, like we talked about this when we were on the wine trip to Cyprus together, it's like there needs to be, to some degree, some influx. If you don't have, you know, like some influx is always healthy. If just, and I know this from being a restaurant owner. Of course. When we have new staff come, they all have a different experience that they're going to bring into this, which is then going to shape the business in a, in a better way. And it's, yeah, progressive. And they push everybody means, in the environment. Yeah. Yeah. No, um, I love this. Yeah. I so really we, do. yeah, well, I actually love this appellate, like this crew. Um, oh, so talk to me about the appellation because this is different than. Yes, yeah, so we're now in Cote de Brie, okay. um, which is on the slopes of the Montbrui. And visually, I think it's one of the most beautiful parts of, um, of Beaujolais because you have this basically, like, I mean, it's, it's an old mount, like, old, okay, like, old mountain, the Montbrui. Uh, it's UNESCO. It's a UNESCO geo park, the oh, wow. uh, Montbrui itself, and on the slopes of that, just going around it, you have this appellation. So it's uh, it's for me exciting mainly because of the soil types. You have a lot of the bluestone, which is the oldest geogra- like uh, geologically, not geographically, geologically the oldest soil um, in Beaujolais is this old bluestone where you get this amazing, very pretty. Uh, but at the same time, structured wines. Like, um, we'll, we'll get to one, actually. The next one we're going to try is Morgon Cooked Pea, and it's a part of the Morgon Appellation, which is really dense in these blue stones. And I've got such a huge soft spot, I think, because I, I like wines that are maybe more austere. When I was in Beaujolais, I found that every time I was tasting particular wines, I was always really... Like, I was just naturally drawn to the wines that were produced from vineyards that were grown on bluestone. And I think it's to do with the, the texture, the tannin, the interplay with the flavours that you get from that, this mineral, fresh acidity. Like, there's something... Mm. There is something really different. Like, when you compare this to the flurry that we've tried, the texture of the wine is different. There's, like, a, a raciness in the mineral quality of the wine. And I do think there is, like, a different kind of density in this kind of, like, bittersweet saltiness almost that leads you back to it and I say saltiness because this isn't a salty wine but saltiness in that mineral kind of understanding of it and I think this is just kind of the style of wines that I really appreciate but this appellation is like 40% blue stone and then there is granite and there's a little bit as well of other stony soils and it's just made up of 100 growers over 300 hectares so everybody's got yeah everybody's got like you know I mean the average is three hectares per per grower obviously there'd be some producers that have more some that have less and would it be typical then in this region so if you've only got three hectares it's actually quite small um 
for wine producing person, would you get grapes from other people or would you singularly use the grapes off your plot? I think it depends on the business model mm. and it depends on what volume of wine you want to make and what style of wine you're making. Of course, there are some people that buy and some people that grow and some people that do both. Okay. But yeah, so this, yeah, I just love this. So exciting. Yeah. I love this too. Yeah. I was, I was just looking, because I, I made a little notes of like things that I was like, do I need to bring me up? But no, there isn't really, just that it's, it's steeper slopes as well. So obviously everything's worked by hand. Again, of course, like most of the region, Bluestone, which is like, yeah, produces like more intense wines, more expressive wines, you know. And I think, I'm pretty sure, but I need to, like I'm, like, you know, there's this kind of volcanic origin as well to this Bluestone on the old volcano that erupted one time like it's it's quite interesting when you dig into the soils one time years ago one time <laughs> millennia ago i love it mm. Thirty thousand years ago when the volcano went off yeah <laughs> so i kind of recommend, <laughs> kind of recommend that to people that want something that's more powerful uh, a little bit so more you spicy and a bit more structured what's the alcohol it's definitely then? more um, the alcohol is 13.5. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I think it's it more powerful. feel like that. Because of, yeah, but because of the blue stone, it's got this racy acidity and this freshness to the wine, which balances, like, the weight of it and also the structure of it. Mm. The more acid you have. Yeah. The lake of the blue stone. It's <laughs> a Lord it. of the Rings novel that was never written. <laughs> That's right. Yes. On the volcanic mountain. <laughs> of the Mont Rui. Go now, mm. we'll swap appellations. We're going to go to Morgon. So we've got two wines from Morgon next. I can keep this then and get rid of my flurry. Yeah, I guess you should, yeah. What do you think? Yeah, just do it. So, um, yeah. I'll just keep keeping my favourite wine and then seeing how we go. Yeah, great. Uh, for people as well, I just realised we didn't talk anything about Alex Foyard. That was his mm. third vintage. His first vintage was 2016 when he was 24 or 25. He's the son of uh, Jean Foyard, and um, who is a very iconic, let's say, natural winemaker, part of the Gang of Four in Beaujolais. Not That's this, just, no, the wine. The one we just, just did. Had. Okay, okay. And mm. um, yeah. so he's super young. That must be a family winery. Yeah, I mean, he started helping his father with <clears throat> uh, harvest when he was a teenager, and then then he went off to uh, study winemaking in Montpellier, came back to, actually he went to Burgundy next and he worked at a, a winery called Prior Rock for a few years, which is a very famous sort of natural uh, wine estate in Nuit Saint-Georges and then came back to Beaujolais in 15 and then uh, started making his own wine in 16. Yeah, 24 he was when he was doing that, which is nice. like, yeah, it's pretty young, but also he would have had a lot of experience and kind of, you know been quite precocious because actually like he had all of that around him all of the time anyway so that's his third vintage it's still really good are you um, pointing these two side by side yeah you need to tip the other one away oh you just drink it yeah that's good you're making this is exactly what gwen does so you're filling in well <laughs> she will be proud if she sees that i hope so <clears throat> yes. i hope so yeah so the one on the left <laughs> is the um, Domaine Rochette Morgon Cote P 2018 and the one on the right is the Celebrité Morgon from Sebastian Congretel. Now, you did mention when we started this that they were both crews. Is that these two are crews, the Morgon? Morgon is the crew, is the name of the crew. So there are 10 crew appellations in Beaujolais and this is one of them, Morgon. 
Okay. So it's like the subzone, basically. Okay. Yeah. So Morgon is one of the, again, one of the larger appellations. So it's over a thousand hectares. It's 1100 hectares. Okay. And it's predominantly granite, but there are some bluestones as well, particularly around Morgon Cote is almost 100% bluestone, which is why it's become such a, a well-known Ludi or well-known area for producing wine because of the unique soils there. So actually the Cote de Pie has a lot in common with the Cote de Brie that we just tried before because of the soil makeup. Mm-hmm. And it's also something that makes it kind of singular and a little bit different to the other wines in the Appalachian because most of the rest of Morgon is on this granitic pink granite or granitic sand. Okay. Um, so depending where you are in the Appalachian, the style of the wine will be different. I'm getting, I'm getting some of those traditional flavors, like the sweetness and the, the candy. But, but I'm also ge- getting like tobacco. Yeah, there is this kind of a resinous mm-hmm. quality to it for sure. And in general, Morgon anyway, out of all of the crew, tends to be more full-bodied, richer, more robust. And I would say, you know, particularly for like Cote, wines from Cote de Pie as well, like very terroir-driven. Terroir lovely acidity, lovely balance. I love that word. Terroir or? Is that because your business is called terroir? <laughs> Slightly biased. I'm very biased. <laughs> but yeah, and also the Appalachian itself is a, is an area that's quite sunny, so it has quite a mild climate and is. So the first one, actually, um, I don't know this producer so well, but it's a a, a family run winery that's been in the family for many generations, and it's now the son making the wine. They're around fifteen hectares, so it's the biggest producer that we've tried today because we. Many of the wines that we've tried come from like two to three hectares. So it's still... The one before still was very, three. Yeah. Yeah. And the second wine that we're trying, we'll get to, but it's smaller. But 15 is still obviously very small. Mm-hmm. But this is very common in Beaujolais to have wineries this size as well. I like um, this. Quite traditional winemaking. Everything's 100% bush vine, gobelet as well here. Uh, so they haven't changed any of their farming, which is obviously, yeah, keeping with the tradition. They're located at about 300 metres which is quite high for the Appalachian. So I think that's why there's like, there's just a little bit more lift as well, but yeah. So that's um, and when a you meaty s- wine. Not meaty, but like it's, there's a savory, on it. There's a savoriness, yes. there's more tannin. Umami. Yeah, it's yeah. like, it's more robust, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a higher alcohol, it must be. 13.5. Oh, same as but the last one. But Coke Peak could be higher than that because yeah. you've got, basically it's like a small, hillside i mean it's not that small i thought it was going to be smaller but like i mean it's it's not huge at the same time but imagine just like a a hill coming up you've got this like dense blue stone old volcanic stone and then sun just like beating down on that hill all Mm. day and then there's like a solo tree on the top which is it's kind of magical but anyway um this is from that vineyard site so that's so beautiful yeah and what about um is there oak on that because that tastes like it's got some oak there, I think there's old oak, but I don't think it's... Uh, it's vinified in tanks. So it's definitely vinified in stainless steel. Okay. And I think there's some old old wood just for the um, élevage before bottling. And question for you that may not be relevant at all, but just curious. I was curious about this. Do they use French oak? Yes. Uh, why, would you, like, why would you ship something? Especially, like... For a region like this, where they're... Well, but they do all the time. In Central Europe, they ship Americans. In yeah. America, they ship Hungarians. Like, not people, obviously barrels. 
Yeah. But <laughs> yes. They were shipping people, they'd be super yeah. weird. Although they do, it's called immigration. No, <laughs> slightly. Yeah. But I, I think, um, no, I think, you know, when you're making wines like this, like this is also one of the topics that comes up quite a lot with the natural wine question about using like foreign containers or vessels. Like, does that make, like, if you're, okay, you can. Well, I guess that's why I ask, because I'm always curious. And yeah. I see, I've seen winemakers who always do. They ship wine barrels all over the world. And sometimes it's just a matter of a relationship that they might have with a cooperage that is in a place where they yeah. had maybe a connection or a friend or maybe they grew wines there at one point. But it's odd to me because if you're talking about being natural and sustainable and ethical... Local has to be like so much a part of that. And shouldn't the barrel have the terroir of the place as well? Mm. Yeah, I think... But then, yeah, if you want to make like traditional wines and traditional wines in the best sense I think I think so too yeah I'm yeah I, I'm pondering on that a lot actually it's like the food question as well which links into veganism which we could go into that but that should be saved for another time because we could go off on a tangent on that but like I, there are so many ethical choices in this which are complicated multi, multifaceted as well so you know what term I'm, I'm starting to use now as a catch-all or an umbrella conscientious because I don't think we can be dogmatic about these ideologies but I think we can make conscious choices yeah we can be aware of what that means and why we made a decision so if we're making something that doesn't wholeheartedly like fall into that natural or sustainable or organic or but like because I don't think we can all the time yeah then we do it conscientiously yep that's Hmm. my thought I concur so let's move on to the next ones we just tried that so we've got Sebastian Congretel, 2017, the Morgon here. Um, so actually, another new winemaker started mm. in two, 2015, two and a half hectares. Um, and I bought this here actually in, in Berlin from the previous importer. 100% whole bunch, 12 days in concrete. Uh, the vineyards, uh, or the vineyard itself was planted in the mid-50s and south facing and predominantly sandy granite so it's kind of is that unfiltered yeah yeah and quite different and i actually in hindsight maybe should have done them the other way around because it is lighter but maybe i was worried i did think that maybe just knowing the Mm. wines that this had more flavor and more intensity i'm happy you did it this way okay because for me um it doesn't look like a good face (laughs) do i need to give you more coke (laughs) break yeah um, this is the most challenging to drink, I would say, for me. Okay. Um, it has that, and maybe because it's unfiltered, I mean, it's very similar in quality to this. Um, for me, it has kind of a dusty note. Mm. And it's not a bad thing. It's just, okay. it's got that sort of older age quality that... So I don't find a dusty note in this wine, but... Like, like... I, was, I should smoke a pipe with this. Yeah, that'd be good. Or a cigar. But I think, but I, for me, I can see that resinous, like that resin kind of note again, a little bit like this kind of like freshy rolled tobacco, Mm. like coming out actually. Mm. But because it's unfiltered, I'm just getting that more intently. Yeah, and I think that is the thing. There's more character when you're making wines like that. Yeah, which is why I think it's better that we tasted it second, because this is. I don't want to say more pure, because obviously this is more pure. Mm. It's kind of a contradiction of itself, isn't it? But this is more stripped down, if that makes sense. And then this is more raw. 
that's how I would describe it. Mm, I'd say this is more intense and this is like maybe just a little bit more discreet. Is that what I said? Yeah. Just like me. <laughs> just for anyone else. Just like just giving them options of the language that we can all use. Yeah, there's always different <laughs> yeah, vernacular. Yes. Lots of vernacular, especially with us, Emily. Yes, I know. But yeah, that was kind of like... I, I kind of well we tried three appellations obviously there are more um 12 12 yes. there's 12 appellations 12 appellations i was listening look at you I you're know. very happy with that <laughs> um but yeah there are other i think we'll just name the other the, the other crew before we before we sign off so brewery um which is obviously lower than the coach brewery that we tried before chenas which is the smallest appellation in beaujolais julianas chirub moulin avant Renier and Santa Moore are the other crews, so if anybody sees them out and about, you should definitely check them out. And I think some of the lesser known ones are coming up. Um, like Renier, for example, is quite interesting, but I Julianas is one of my one of my favourite appellations actually, and I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, but if anybody has any questions about particular producers, crew Production techniques. I have a question for you. Other than nothing. No, but I think this is interesting yeah. for the people who are listening because one of the things as a amateur wine person, if you want to go learn about wine, the best way to do it is go to explore a region. Like mm. actually go and see what it's all about. I was supposed to go to uh, Gigondas actually. Gigondas. Thank yeah. you. Exactly. Uh, before Corona, mm. and obviously that didn't happen. But the point is, going there makes you more familiar. You see the terroir, you see the environment. So what I would suggest for someone who's listening, one of your listeners, what's the best way to visit Beaujolais? What's the best way? Like you go to Lyon, obviously. Oh, you mean how to access the region physically? Yes, so I want to do a wine tour of Beaujolais. Tell me how to... I fly into Lyon. Lyon, I mean, or you can fly into Paris and you okay. can also take a train directly to Lyon, which is a nice way to travel. Done that. Yeah. Um, I mean, or you come from the south. I think if you're in Marseille or... Um, you come north. In Montpellier, you can take a train north. But yeah, Lyon is the closest airport. If not, Paris. That's how I travelled there. I flew into Paris and I took a train and, uh, and then hired a car. And, and where do you want to go? If I had... Three days, a long weekend. Wine tourism. I mean, it depends on the style of wine that you want to have, but many of the Beaujolais towns, like in Fleury, there's some great restaurants, for example. Mm. And a lot of the towns have good restaurants. I imagine. Um, so it would be possible, if anyone's interested in that, we, there'll be links to into Beaujolais, and they have a website, actually, that is set up with where to stay, where to go, what to see. Um, I recommend... One of the highlights for me, if you visit Beaujolais, is going to the UNESCO Geopark, looking at uh, Montbrui and learning about that. Blue stones. And the blue stones. (laughs) But that's really cool. And actually, in some of the places, like for example, in Brui, there is like a a wine shop where you can go and you can taste all of the wines of that appellation. And that exists in a few other parts, but particularly in Brui, that does exist. Um, so I highly, I highly recommend that. Like it's ama- amazing just to have like an overview, um, and obviously visit like local wine bars and restaurants and just drink the wines. But being in the landscape, obviously, and seeing the vines is different. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that. Do you have another question, Arlene? No, that was my last question. Okay. Because I'm gonna go. 
Oh, you're going. Is that why we're I'm going to go. Up? Right, okay. <laughs> oh, no, I'm going to go to Beaujolais. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. I was like, oh, I'm going to go to Beaujolais. Okay. I thought you meant you were, like, leaving right now. No. Okay, good. So... <laughs> Thanks for having That's me. So I'm going to drink this one. Which one is that? That's the... Coach P. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, we usually cheers at the end, but that's okay. Gwen. <laughs> is it at the end? Where are you, Gwen? I'm <laughs> joking. No, Arlene, thank you very much. Uh, for anybody that wants to uh, stay in touch with Arlene, please find her on Instagram, and her Instagram is Arlene Stein, and you can also find her on Tell Talk. Yep. Yeah. Um, as well yeah I feel like you had something no. else to add no no I'm not going to say anything <laughs> and um, yeah you can check in with her <laughs> and then yeah any questions about Beaujolais or the cruise or the wines that we tried today where to find them they're available in the UK and also the German market so I'll happily pass those on and we'll post links to those and the information of the wines yeah and uh that's it really I don't know what else to say and I guess you'll see me um well you'll see me and hear me in the next in the next weeks about some uh some winery visits in the Canary Islands and then yes me and Gwen will be back together I'm sure Arlene will make another appearance at some point as well in case any of you miss her in the interim but until then Mm -hmm. thank you Arlene thank you for having me cheers cheers